Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. We've got a new podcast this week. And in the news, at least for me, is that I'm representing an up-and-coming young rapper named Kay Flock, who is charged with murder in Manhattan in state court. And when thinking about this case, it brought me back to some other rappers that I've represented over the years, which is somewhat interesting because I'm a huge music fan and have been since I'm a kid. And rap sort of came in, I guess when I was about in college, it started becoming um, popular. And I got into some of it, Public Enemy, obviously, Tone Loke, I liked, Bismarck, you know, all the stuff that white kids would have, uh, would have been attracted to. But it never really resonated with me to the degree that I became a huge fan. Anyway, I was thinking back to when I began uh, representing uh, clients in the industry. And the, the first one, I suppose, was Fat Joe, was the first rapper that I represented. And I met him in the late 1990s. I was still working for Jerry Shargell at the time. And uh, Joe came in for some reason or another. I don't even remember. He came in as a new client. I don't recall specifically what he came in for. It was nothing dire or important, obviously, or I, or I probably would have remembered. Jerry asked me to sit on the meeting because he obviously knew nothing about uh, rap music. And I guess he figured there was a shot that maybe I knew something. And I had heard of Joe, but didn't remember, didn't know too much. I guess he thought, Jerry thought I'd be some assistance. I remember sitting down in Jerry's office on the couch while Joe was in the office and he was walking around, did not sit the entire time he was in our office, which was, I don't know, a half hour, 45 minutes. He was just walking back and forth pacing. And, uh, you know, as I've gotten to know Joe, that's, that's standard, basically just ranting, ranting and walking. And that was my first exposure to any kind of rapper, hip hop artist, whatever. What I noticed in the first meeting with Joe, and again, I was not the focus of the meeting. It was Jerry. He was there to see Jerry was this was a guy who was just very genuine, you know, zero ego with us, just a regular guy. The meeting ended and I went back to work, nothing with nothing. I ended up leaving Jerry and going out on my own not, not too long after that, and my relationship with Jerry remained very close and, and still is to this day. And even the first year that I was out on my own, I actually still stayed in Jerry's office on the floor, and I rented space from him, and it was actually the office that I was in when I was his associate. So I just basically stayed in the same exact spot, but I was now on my own. Eventually, a year after, I, I moved to a different space, a floor with many criminal lawyers, with Jimmy LaRosa, who was a legendary criminal trial lawyer and, and Jerry's first boss. So there's some sort of uh, connection there. And, and I was uh, on that floor. He was my landlord. And my memories from that space were the ones I talked about, but Bruce Cutler, he was there as well. I spoke about him a few weeks ago. He was a tenant uh, on that floor. My memories mainly were eating lunch every day with Jimmy downstairs at a restaurant that was in the building. Some of my happiest moments as a lawyer were being with him during those lunches every day. It was Jimmy, myself, and, and Jimmy's former associate, who was also on his own, Andrew Weinstein, who actually brought me to Jimmy's floor, which was amazing because I needed to move and, and Andrew hooked me up and I've never forgotten uh, what he did for me, getting me over there. Jimmy's uh, was nearing the end of his career and was very interested in lunch. And that's basically what, you know, he talked about from the moment he came into the office. He had to walk past my office down the hallway in order to get to his office 
at the end at the corner had this giant corner office with windows uh, two different views of manhattan from you know floor to ceiling windows and he had this this white carpet on the floor thick carpet and he had these beautiful green uh, velvety chairs that you'd sit in in front of his desk and all he did during the day was smoke cigarettes uh, and there were cigarette burn marks all over the carpet and he would basically just sit there but when he walked past uh, my office every day he'd stop he would walk stop he had his right hand in his in his jacket pocket he would turn to me and look in and say what time is lunch today and it was like 10 o'clock in the morning so of course you know we're starting to think about lunch and as i said i had lunch with him and andrew every single day if andrew ever listens to this he will remember that he never paid for lunch he always forgot his wallet and it was basically jimmy and i paying for lunch every other day jim uh, jimmy's not around anymore andrew will probably deny this but possibly not anyway after a few years um i left that space and took another space with jimmy at another another uh, a law firm we took a few offices um and jimmy was downsizing as he was getting closer to retirement so we just had a couple of offices it was much different than what we had it is gigantic floor where he was the, uh, the the king of the of the castle so to speak i was on my way up as a trial lawyer jimmy was winding down and it was in that space that i did the john Gotti jr trial from that office that was on uh, 59th and broadway 58th and broadway i had no associate getting ready for that trial i had no paralegal i did the entire trial prep myself including making binders for my cross-examinations, getting the exhibits together. I did the investigation work myself. I sent out the subpoenas. I had no one helping me. I would print them up, type them up myself. I had hired Mark Furnish, who's my closest friend in the entire legal world, and also the best law guy in the city. And, and back then, it's been now, I guess, 18 years since we started working on that case. He was great then, and he's insane, but he's better now even. And Mark wrote the motions and, you know, did all the legal stuff, that kind of stuff to take the pressure off of me so I could focus on the cross-examinations. But it was a, a tremendous amount of work to do all that by myself. I had a year to do it. I didn't hire my first associate until a few weeks before the Gotti trial started. So I had an associate sit with me at the trial and assist during the crosses, you know, handing me exhibits, documents, things like that. But every drop of work in that case was done by me. And it was due to that, I suppose, and the other trials that I had before John's trial, where I did every bit of work myself, that I became the lawyer that I am today. I do all the work that matters in a trial because I'm not comfortable delegating to anyone else. My ass is literally on the line during these trials. I get all the glory when we win and all the blame when we lose. And I don't want the blame. So I do the work myself, knowing that no one is going to care like I will about the work. Because ultimately, I'm responsible. I'd be a fool to delegate. I mean, it would be easier, I suppose. But if it cost me a 1% or 2% chance of winning the case, you know, that's, that's just, I can't do it. It's unforgivable. And this is a dirty secret about the criminal defense world. Every lawyer delegates work during trials, which is not good for the clients that are on trial. I can tell you that. I completed the Gotti trial in September of 2005, and I was finally a big public success in the criminal defense world. And within a day or so, I get a phone call from Fat Joe. He wanted to meet with me. Now it's been six, seven years, I suppose. 
During that period, since I last saw him in Jerry's office, I had been involved a bit in representing people from the rap world, specifically Jimmy Rosemond, uh, famously known in the industry as Jimmy Henchman. Um, Jimmy managed the game, Sean Kingston, Brandy, Gucci, Maine, Gorilla Black, I think Salt and Pepper, and uh, Akon. These were some of his artists. And he was very connected in the music industry and was a hugely important client in my career. Jimmy's in prison now. He's serving multiple life sentences due to convictions in the federal courts in Brooklyn and Manhattan. The rapper Tupac Shakur believed that Jimmy was involved in setting up the shooting and robbery of him at the Quad Recording Studios in New York City in November of 1994. And as I said, he was a hugely important client to me. He and the people around him, not just for business, he and the people around him were constantly under investigation and his friends were constantly getting indicted for cocaine cases for the most part. I represented all of them and had great results, fantastic results. Many of the cases I got dismissed or very little jail time. The problem is, is that as time went on, a lot of them began to cooperate with the federal authorities years after I represented them. And the clients all really liked me when I represented them and the cases went well, but the feds made clear to them to not contact me when they approached later on because they believed that my loyalty was to Jimmy Rosemond. The truth is it would have been a conflict of interest for me to represent them anyway if they're going to cooperate against Jimmy because obviously you can't represent a, a, a target of cooperation and the cooperator himself. But they were flipping left and right and the investigation against Jimmy continued. We didn't know about uh, some of the people that they were speaking to, but we knew about many of them. And anytime we found out about an inmate who got in touch with us to say the feds came to see him, whenever we'd hear about it, I would go and interview them myself with an investigator present just to try to nail down their version of events in case Jimmy was indicted. This went on for years, for years. Eventually, Jimmy got indicted and I was tossed off the case due to the many conflicts of interest that I had. Many of the witnesses against Jimmy were my former clients that Jimmy put me into. Sadly, I suppose he never thought ahead that these people could flip. I, don't, I, mean, I didn't either, clearly. So I got tossed off the case, and I was out, and he ended up hiring my old boss, Jerry Shargell. And he was convicted incredibly quickly, like a, a couple hours. It was ridiculous for a multi-week trial. And this was a huge heartbreak for me as you know, this was someone for years I was looking forward to representing at trial. No one knew the case like me. No one knew the facts. No one knew the people involved. No one. I, I knew it all. And this was a case that I felt that, you know, when I was getting ready for Gotti, that I, I always believed I was going to win Gotti, that I was going to win this case as well. And it was going to be huge too. I mean, I was, this is how I am. I, I have uh, visions, not visions. I mean, I, I anticipate what the future is going to be, and, and I visualize it. And I visualize winning this case as well. But as I said, when I left, it all fell apart. The government wanted me out um, desperately. They moved immediately to get me off the case, and they allowed some of their witnesses to just make up stories about you know our meetings, even though I had witnesses there, just in an effort to get rid of me. We'll talk about that. I'm going to have an episode on this case, my representation of Jimmy Rosemond at some point in the future. But there was massive government misconduct. And, um, you know, for now, what I would say is I'd refer you, the audience, to a new podcast that just came out called Unjust Justice, the James Rosemond story. And it's hosted by the late Michael K. Williams, and it tells the story of Jimmy Henchman.
And Jimmy Henchman referred the rapper, uh, the game to me. And I handled a case in which he was charged with impersonating a police officer when he was in New York. This is a ridiculous case. Game was alleged to have flashed a badge and ordered uh, like a black car driver to run red lights because supposedly had to get somewhere quickly. He was being chased, I suppose. He didn't know by who, but it ends up, you know, we didn't know if it was paparazzi. He didn't know or whether it was the hip hop police, which was a thing back then, where they harassed Game as soon as he came into New York and until he got to the airport and left. Anyway, uh, the cab driver gave this story, which somehow they believed that the game had flashed a badge and had uh, impersonated a cop, despite the fact that game had tattoos all over his face at the time. You know, many New York cops have tattoos all over their, their faces. So after the arrest, um, both myself and the NYPD gave conflicting statements, I suppose, or opposing statements about the case. I said, quote, this was in the New York Times, this case is either going to be dismissed completely or this will be an embarrassing loss for the NYPD at trial. The NYPD countered, quote, he was arrested for the stated behavior, which included impersonating a police officer. That was the the police department's chief spokesman said that. Well, can you guess which side won? The case was dismissed eventually. And uh, when I think back on that, case representing the game i represented him on another case too a, a minor case i think but i don't even remember anyway what i remember is a couple of things first of all he had an encyclopedic knowledge about college basketball and that's important to me because i'm a huge college basketball fan and game i mean you know there are people that know college basketball and they can talk to you about it a little bit this guy knew his college basketball i mean he wasn't fucking around and we would talk you know endless talks about about all of it but the other part that I remember is that he game was in LA. That's where he lives. We had a 9.30 a.m. court appearance one time in Manhattan, and he knew about it, obviously. Um, he was going to be flying in the night before. And as I'm walking into the courthouse at 9.15 a.m., game calls me, and I asked him if he was already up in the courtroom. No. I missed my flight, is what he told me. And uh, you have to do that in game's voice he's got like a raspy voice so i I can't i can't do it justice like i've done some of my other impersonations missed his flight and apparently he missed the next uh, 19 flights from la to new york as well that were going on throughout the night and in the morning and i had no excuse for the judge nothing i had nothing what was i going to do with this he was not in the state he wasn't even in the time zone and i have to go up and uh, the court expects him to be there So I'm thinking, what do I do? You know, I don't want to get his bail revoked because then there'll be a warrant for his arrest and they'll arrest him in LA and they'll bring him back. It'll take two weeks, you know, inside a bus to get him back to New York. It would be awful. And I I didn't know what to do. You know, what do I, how do you handle this? So I figured that the best defense was a strong offense. So when I, and I'm, I'm just sitting there on the bench, just like literally shitting my pants. And, you know, waiting for them to call the case. I know game is not coming. He's not going to show up, walk through that door. They called the case. And when I appeared before the judge, I was very aggressive. I, I did not let him get a word out when he's asking where game is. I'm just saying there's a mix up and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I was very aggressive with the judge. You know, you can't issue a bench warrant and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the judge just, just sat there just taking it. Finally, he just puts his hands up. I'll never forget this. Neil Ross was the judge, a former Eastern District federal prosecutor who will never listen to this podcast, although I think he has a 
a ponytail these days. Anyway, he puts his hand up and he's like, I, I won't issue a bench warrant, you know, as long as he makes his next appearance, but can you do me a favor and stop yelling at me? And that's, uh, and game showed up for the next court appearance and, uh, all's well that ends well, I suppose on that one. Anyway, back to fat Joe, he contacts me right after the Gotti verdict and asked to come in to see me within literally like a day or two after the verdict. This is September of 2005. I assumed at this point that my practice would just explode. You know, I have this, the biggest hope, high profile win in New York, you know, in years, I suppose, the Gotti case. No one thought there was a chance we could win except for me. And um, I had gotten a hung jury in his case and, and numerous acquittals on the charges against them. And this is a federal case in Manhattan. The other two defendants who were on trial with us were both convicted. John was released from prison and I was really the talk of the town, so to speak. And I finally felt that the public, not just the legal field, was learning that I was actually really good at this. What I didn't expect, but found out soon thereafter, was that many people with criminal cases were afraid to hire me because I had won that case. They felt that I was too associated with the gaudy name, that the trial had gotten too much press. So if you can believe for a year after the Gotti case ended, my practice was slower than it was before. True story. I was shocked. I remember having to talk to a very big real estate client of mine. He was under um, a large, I guess it was a white collar investigation by the state. And I had to talk him into not firing me and getting a new lawyer. This was after the Gotti result. He just felt that the Gotti publicity was too much and he didn't want a lawyer that was, you know, in his mind or in the mind of the prosecutor, a mob lawyer. I, I prevailed upon him by saying, do you want some shitty lawyer who the government won't be afraid of, or do you want someone who they think can beat him? Eventually he kept me and he never got indicted and no one ever found out who that very large real estate client that I was representing was. I had to, you know, basically explain to him, and I've explained this to other clients over the years. The prosecutors only care if your lawyer is good. They don't care about who you have. They're only concerned about winning and they're concerned about getting a conviction. If they think they're going to have a harder time to getting a conviction, they're not happy. Everything else is noise that clients, you know, are delusional about. You need the best lawyer you can get, period. So Joe comes in, Fat Joe comes in and instantly, of course, he had forgotten that we had met years earlier in Jerry Shargell's office. And he stood in the office in front of me. I'm at behind my desk. He stood the entire time, did not sit down once. This, he had some problem. There was some investigation of a case with a friend and Joe was concerned he might get uh, brought in, you know, nothing really with nothing. It was a great meeting and I really liked him instantly. As I said, years before we had met in Jerry's office and I, and I hadn't really interacted with him there, but now he was here for me. And I'll never forget what he said to me when he came in. He stood up. I think he had his hand in his pants. He was like he was watching uh, like a football game on TV on a Sunday. He was very comfortable. Mr. Lickman, with all respect, if you could get Gotti off, then you have to be my lawyer. That man was guilty. And <laughs> I listened to this. And that's how I became Fat Joe's lawyer. And unlike many clients, many people in the field of uh, the criminal defense world, Joe is incredibly loyal, decent, kind, and not a scumbag. Just a wonderful guy to represent. He's incredibly supportive and always appreciative. In a field where every client is figuring out a way to screw you over, to turn on you, 
to uh, cooperate with the feds against you, to steal from you, Joe, Joe has really stood out as completely the opposite. And another person that was like that was John Gotti Jr. I mean, he was indicted for a conspiracy to murder, multiple counts of conspiracy to murder, racketeering, assault, stock fraud, and was sitting in the infamous MCC prison in lower Manhattan, which is now closed down after Jeffrey Epstein killed himself there. And this is back in 2004. My kids had just been born 10 weeks prematurely and were in the hospital for nine weeks. I was there every day, multiple times a day. And John, who was in jail, had just been indicted two weeks earlier, never once gave me a hard time about being in the hospital all the time. His trial was in a year, and I'm spending two months of it, in his mind, in the hospital multiple times a day. And he would tell me, he knew I would do the work, because that's the kind of guy he was. He was smart enough to appreciate the fact that this case was the chance of a lifetime for me, and I wasn't going to let that chance disappear. So he would tell me every time I'd come see him, stop visiting me, worry about your kids, take care of your kids, don't worry about me. That's the kind of guy John was. And I remember one time leaving the prison and uh, getting a phone call and finding out that one of my kids, you know, tiny little babies had a brain bleed and we weren't sure if uh, there was going to be brain damage. That happened as I was in a cab coming from the MCC to the hospital. But that's the kind of guy John was. And is. I don't know that there was a client who ever treated me better, who was more loyal to me than John. To me, he's a brother, and, and that's what I call him when we text each other. He is a brother. We still speak often. And I would do anything for him because he always treated me like I was part of his family. Anyway, Fat Joe and I had uh, kept in touch after that meeting in uh, my office in 2005, after the Gotti trial. And I had kept him out of the mess that he was concerned of being dragged into. And I was feeling, I suppose, my powers as a defense lawyer at this time pretty seriously. I knew how good I was from that trial. That was the best of the best in terms of prosecutors in the Southern District of New York that was against me. They were the top prosecutors in the office, and I was, for the most part, by myself. I had Mark backing me up with the law, but it was me on my feet all day, every day, and that was it. You know, the public had known how good I was now. The prosecutors knew. This was no minor achievement. I was not afraid of any case, any lawyer, any judge. I knew that I could convince any jury to not convict my client after that case. And we lose a lot as defense lawyers. You know, we have to get past the failure. It's like being a, a Hall of Fame baseball player. What do they say? What do you call a guy who fails seven out of 10 times? You call him a Hall of Famer. You have to just think, you know, next play. Just forget the loss. You can't let it get into your head. You can't let any of the negativity seep into your head because it can paralyze you. You know, if you, if you let it get into your head and you get the yips, you know, like the golfer that stands over the, a putt and, and can't, can't pull the trigger. If you get the yips in this field, you're finished. You can't represent someone when you're scared to death. It's not a field for the weak. Even if you're scared, You've got to face your demons. You've got to face the fear, and you've got to walk through it. You've got to walk through the wall. You've got to walk through the fire. The clients are, are charged uh, oftentimes with violence, and they can be a little crazy sometimes. You can't show fear to any of them, any of them, not to the clients, the judges, the prosecutors. Can't show any fear, even if you're terrified inside. 
So as I said, Joe and I kept in touch sporadically uh, after that representation. And a few years later, he ends up getting investigated for failure to file tax returns. For four years, he just didn't file returns federally or state. Like many artists, he didn't run his day-to-day financial life. He had people who did it for him. And his longtime accountant who paid all of his bills had a tragedy in the family with one of his kids and had to quit representing Joe, quit working for him. Joe ended up with some accounting firm that was unknown to him and was involved in a Ponzi scheme where they were defrauding their clients out of millions of dollars and they botched his taxes. They didn't pay his bills. They cost him so much money, but he never filed taxes during a four-year period. And it was still on him, even though it was immediately after he lost his longtime accountant. That's when all hell broke loose. You can't just say, well, you know, it's the accountant's fault that he didn't file for four straight years. The first thing we did was convince the government not to charge him with tax fraud. This is different than failure to file, and this is important because tax fraud is a felony with higher penalties. It involves, you know, they have to prove that not just the taxes weren't paid, but that fraud was involved in tax returns or in efforts to avoid paying taxes. The prosecutors, the federal prosecutors in New Jersey agreed ultimately, but we still had four years of no tax returns or taxes paid left, and they were all misdemeanors. But as a misdemeanor, each one had a year maximum penalty in jail attached. And it was consecutive time, it would have been, as each year had nothing to do with the other year. So he was facing four years in prison. We negotiated for months. We begged, we pleaded, we screamed. And finally, they dropped two of the four years. So he had two misdemeanors facing 24 months in jail. Now, the judge would know that he hadn't paid for four years but the judge's hands were tied, so to speak, with a 24-month maximum. So the judge would know that it was really 48 months possible, but because we limited it to two misdemeanors, that the judge can only go to two years. And Joe's federal sentencing guidelines, it's it's a, a computation. They're advisory and not mandatory for the judge. It's a computation that takes into account the crime and various adjustments upward and downward and including uh, amount of tax loss and whether you accept responsibility and take a plea, whether you're a leader or organizer, you get some points, whether sophisticated means used to commit the crime, you get some more points. Well, his advisory sentencing guidelines came out to 24 to 30 months, and that's just the strong suggestion to the court. But as I said, because there were only two misdemeanors, he was max 24 months. Uh, naturally, I wanted probation. I didn't want any jail time. And all the work we did in advance of sentencing was hugely important. When we realized that he hadn't paid his taxes for years, we had him start paying it back, the arrears, the taxes and penalties and interest, and he paid back a decent amount before the Fed's investigation even became apparent. That was important because it showed that he didn't just start paying it back after he got caught. By the time he was sentenced, he paid back all the federal tax money owed. We looked at other similar cases, and many people had gone to jail for what Joe had done. You know, this wasn't murder, so there wasn't quite the same need uh, to punish the same way. And he had a massive amount of support from the community, just a massive amount. We had just this huge sentencing submission, over 60 letters attached to it. They discussed his community involvement, his charitable endeavors, his generosity to schools, children, neighbors, friends. He always said yes when people asked him to attend charitable events. He raised money. He was a completely selfless guy. And for years before any need to impress a judge at sentencing, that's when he did all this stuff. So no one was watching then. 
it was really the best sentencing memo I think I've ever submitted. And, and it helped because it was all real. Joe really is that kind of guy. A lot of times you represent someone, they get indicted and they say, what can I do? Can I give money now to help me at sentencing? I'm like, dude, the, the horse is out of the barn, so to speak. Joe, on the other hand, is really that guy, really is decent and charitable, humble, generous, you know, just a great guy. Whatever you ask for, the guy gives you. He's that kind of guy. He never complains. He never looks at you like, come on, man. Doesn't have a bad word to say about anyone. And I was really hoping that it would come back to help him when he finally needed some mercy for himself. The sentencing in that case lasted hours. And before it started, Joe was, as you can imagine, very nervous. He could be going to jail. No one wants to go to prison. No one. I tried to break up the tension as the judge was about to come onto the bench by asking him about the Knicks. This is a joke, a running joke with us about the Knicks because they always suck. You know, since I've known them, I think I've known them, you know, obviously since they were good, which I guess the last time they were really good was when they were in the finals uh, against the Houston when OJ was on the lam uh, getting chased by the police. So I asked him what he thought about the Knicks. Uh, what did he think about the upcoming season? And he looked at me like I was nuts and he's like, dude now and the sentencing was such a war it went back and forth for hours i would not accept a day of jail time for the guy because he really didn't deserve it in my mind he had done too much for society he had paid back his taxes i mean no way was he going to go to jail in my mind and the judge kept saying that he was a role model and that if he skirted jail what kind of message would that you know send to the children and i felt like you know that's not really fair because he's a role model, why should that count against him? If he was a regular guy, would you put him in jail when no one would even know about this case? Why should he be penalized because, what, he's famous? It just didn't seem to make any sense. Finally, the judge came out with a four-month prison sentence, you know, down from the 24 months, but I was really pissed off. I was crazy angry. He ended up having to serve about three months of it in uh, the MCC or MDC, I think it's called, in Miami. But when we left the courthouse, I, I was livid. As typical of Joe, he was completely fine with it. I mean, he wasn't happy, um, but he was happy he didn't get more jail time. And he was really happy about how hard I argued for him. And, you know, since then he's referred many clients to me and I still represent him now on, you know, various things, not criminal stuff, obviously. And he did his uh, short period of time in jail and, and got right back to the grind and all good things have come to him since then for two major reasons when I thought about it. He works his ass off like no one I know. I mean, this guy, no one works harder than him. And second, he's, like I said, he's just a positive, good guy. He's just the best guy. The best. And every time I see him, we still laugh about the Knicks. And every year we think this is the year that they're going to break out. But of course, they never do. And I'm a big fan of uh, R.J. Barrett. He went to Duke. I went to Duke. And this is the year, actually. So, Joe, if you're listening to this, and there's a chance, I suppose, that uh, he will. I don't want to force. I may force this upon him. I told you about R.J. Barrett. He's going to hit 20 points a game this year. Finally happened third year. He is the best player on the Knicks. I told you. I told you so. And I did his uh, talk show. We had um, an internet Instagram talk show. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did it when he started and it was fun. And what was also very cool is that he came out with a song with the rapper Jim Jones called New York City, NYC, which had the following lyrics, which referred to Joe. New York's Pablo, same lawyer as Chapo, which is pretty cool because I represented Chapo Guzman and represented Fat Joe. And 
I feel that more people should write music lyrics about me. I think that's a, that's a good thing. If anyone is listening who can make this happen, well, you know who you are. Now, let me get on to other events uh, in the news right now. And uh, this Tom Brady retirement football debacle, is anybody out there are you aware of this? I would imagine most of the men are who are listening. Tom Brady, the great Hall of Fame quarterback, unretired from football and will be coming back to play for the Tampa Bay Bucks this fall, just 40 days after he announced his retirement in late January. Now, this isn't really particularly interesting unless you're, I suppose, uh, a sports card or sports memorabilia collector or a Buccaneers fan, I suppose. And then you're aware that 24 hours, actually less than 24 hours before Brady announced he was coming back to play for his 23rd season, the ball, which was his last touchdown pass before retiring, so-called retiring, it's sold in an auction for about $518,000. This ball was advertised in the Leland's auction house listing as Brady's last touchdown pass football and the final touchdown ball of Tom Brady's career. In the item's auction listing description, it makes clear that the ball has massive value for one reason. It's the last touchdown pass Brady will ever throw. Except it isn't, now that he's unretired, and surely will throw many more this coming year. And the ball is worth, I don't know, from 518000 which is what the hammer price was the next day when he announced he was coming back, 15000 maybe twenty, and only that much because the ball has some controversy attached to it. Now, along with the football, the winning bidder would be getting a letter of authentication from a third-party authenticator which noted that the ball, they, they photo matched it and they could see the ball that was in the Leland's auction and the one that was caught by Mike Evans and flung into the stands. He was the receiver for the Buccaneers who caught the 50 plus yard touchdown pass, the last one of supposedly of Brady's career. They photo matched it and they wrote a letter attesting to it. And they said it was the final touchdown pass of Brady's NFL career. Now, I'm not only a massive collector of vintage sports cards and memorabilia, but I'm actively involved in the legal end of the hobby. I don't know if there's a, a lawyer that has more involvement than I do in sports hobby-related cases. In fact, I know there isn't. I'm not just being uh, modest here. It's true. I've represented auction houses, collectors, grading companies, fraudsters, victims of fraudsters, you name it. I've worked with the FBI on numerous fraud cases to help bring criminals to justice in the sports card industry, and I've kept criminals out of prison for their own hobby fraud. In this case, the hobby seemed somewhat split as to whether or not the high bidder of the football, the Brady football, should have to pay for it now that Brady is unretired. And the idiots in the press are all claiming that the buyer is on the hook for the full 518000 because think about it, the listing was accurate when the auction ended. And you have to assume, I suppose, there's a possibility that he could unretire could i mean it's theoretically possible but the consigner is not at fault also i mean you can't blame him what did he know he gave the football to the auction company and he didn't do anything wrong the auction house is presumably not at fault it's not like tom brady consults with them before he uh, decides uh, to unretire but you know this was the final td pass before all this occurred so when the ball was bought it was an accurate description and there was no fault on any side but the buyer is also not at fault and he's not getting what he bargained for 
he's not getting the final TD pass of Brady's career. Tom Brady did not actually retire legally at the time the auction went off. The team he was on, the Buccaneers, never filed his retirement papers, hoping that he would change his mind. They were hoping. So why should the buyer have to pay for a ball as if it was Brady's last touchdown pass when the ball he would be receiving was not that? The letter of authentication says the ball is the final ball of Tom Brady's career. It's not. Period. They're not delivering what their letter of authenticity promises. That's it. Period. Now, I think the reason why there's even people that are against the buyer and feel that that he should pay is because this is a guy, presumably, that can afford to spend $518,000 on a football. Not many people in our society can do that. And there's jealousy. So, oftentimes what happens in this hobby, because it's filled with jealous people, people just side against the rich guy because they want to be that rich guy. Alas, no. As I said also, or actually I haven't said yet, is that in, in Leland's auction rules, it's written, and I'm going to quote, quote this, it's written that Leland stands by the authenticity of everything it sells for a period of three years from the date of the auction. It's up to the client to verify authenticity within that period. I don't know if this could be any clearer. The ball sold is no longer authentic as the last touchdown pass of Brady's career, period. Leland's cannot deliver the ball as authentic the day after the auction, let alone three years later. Did the buyer, as I said, believe it was possible that Brady could unretire? Of course. But did the listing provide that possibility in their listing? You know, in the listing, did it say that? Did it say that Leland's right in the description? You're bidding on this ball with the understanding that Brady may unretire and you may not be getting his last touchdown pass ball. No, they didn't. And why didn't they? Because they wanted the price to be as high as possible. They didn't want to put any kind of language that would put a damper on the, on the bidding. So the, the bidder is certainly going to be off the hook here. I don't you know, know necessarily what, what's happened behind the scenes yet, but if the buyer refuses to pay for the ball and Leland sues them for it, imagine the massive amount of negative publicity for Leland's and the person that's trying to force someone to to pay up for a ball that's worth 5% of what it was worth when they bought it just hours before, you know, this is, um, it's, it's not the kind of thing that I suppose any auction house wants and they're going to screw over and he's still the little guy, the, the buyer, they're not going to make him pay for something that really an act of God, a thunderbolt from the sky, you know, that destroys your car after you go to buy it, you hand over some money. And as you're handing the guy the money, the car blows up. You know, you're not going to have to pay for that when, before you paid the money. So anyway, now I have actually have a history with Leland's and this is maybe the most interesting part about the story. I've spent over six figures in their auctions over the years and I had my life threatened by the owner. Really? Now he since passed on, may he rest in peace. I called up the auction house during one of their auctions while auction was still going on to let them know that one of the items that they were selling was not as described. It was a full ticket to a Led Zeppelin concert from like 50 years ago. And I had done some quick research because I thought it was unusual that there would be a full ticket. You have a ticket to a Led Zeppelin concert, you're going to use it. It's going to be ripped. This one was a full ticket and it seemed odd. Red flag. Did some quick research and saw that the concert had been canceled for some reason or another. I actually think it was because of some kind of plague. I have a vague memory. There was some kind of sickness like in the Bay Area. Um, and they had to cancel the concert. 
So the item listing uh, in the auction said that Led Zeppelin played that night and you can have a ticket to a concert where they played that night, blah, blah, blah. And it's a, it's a minor error, but it's an error because there was no Led Zeppelin concert that night. So I politely called up Leland to let them know. And the nice woman who answered the phone put me on hold. And a minute later, the owner of the company gets on the phone and said that he was going to come to my house and murder me and my children. True story. Swear to God, this happened. I have a witness. I laughed because it was so shocking, but he was so serious. I'm going to come over to your house, motherfucker, and shoot you and kill your kids. And he said it angrier. I'm like, dude, what the fuck is your problem? He tells me that unknown to me, I had been torturing him on one of the vintage baseball card websites by pointing out that there were some issues with his auction house. I thought that there were some shady things going on and I'm a voice that's listened to in this hobby and it was driving him nuts. You know, he said that I, I made it so he couldn't sleep for nights and I didn't even know. So instead of just confronting me or picking up the phone, which some people do when I speak publicly about them in the, in the hobby, say bad things about them because I see fraud and I, I bring it out. He just seethed in private and was like plotting to kill me. Anyway, so I'm laughing at him and I told him I wasn't exactly shaking in my boots about some fat, bald, 55-year-old Jewish guy coming to my house to kill me and that if he actually had the balls to show up, there was a high probability he'd have 10 bullets in him before he got to the front door. But he was really mad, so I got off the phone. I called up an FBI agent who works with me on sports hobby cases and told him what happened. We laughed about it and he says, I'm going to call Josh up. And a minute later, the agent calls me back and says, wait by your phone for 30 seconds. 30 seconds later, Josh calls back and he's very sheepish and he apologized and we laughed about it. And, you know, as crazy as this sounds, that's the hobby. It's just filled with lunatics. Naturally, the auction house owner threatening to murder my children was not enough uh, to bar me, to prevent me from bidding in his auctions. And I still do. I just uh, won a bunch of things and they actually shipped to me before I even pay. They trust me. I'm a good, good client. But my view is if they got the cards I want, eh. I'll get over the threat to my life and the threat to my kids. And Josh, the owner, uh, died uh, not that long ago. And I actually felt bad as I liked him, even though, as I said, he threatened to kill my family. Now, it's hard to explain, but again, you need to be in the hobby, I suppose, to fully understand what the hell I'm talking about. The next topic to talk about is this Leah Thomas. That's the uh, Will Thomas became Leah Thomas. Um, the swimmer, the NCAA swimmer who won a championship, I think on Friday in the 500 freestyle race, many people booed when Leah won and the poor runners up, they had no chance mainly because Leah is three times their size, went through male puberty and has a dick attached to, uh, him, her, whatever. Anyway, um, somehow in America, this is okay. No boobs, a penis attached. Uh, Leah's attracted to women. I think she's got a girlfriend. All things that would suggest that she's a straight guy. Penis, check. No boobs, check. Likes women, has a girlfriend, checkity, check. But because she decides that she wants to be a woman, she gets to be a woman and crush all the real women in the races. And she was like the 462nd ranked male swimmer two years ago. But after undergoing some testosterone blocking drugs, she's now the number one ranked woman in the country breaking all these women's records, even though if you actually check her chromosomes and check the, uh, the gherkin that's in her pants, you would think that perhaps this is actually a man. I have zero problems with her wanting to identify as a woman. I don't care. 
you know, if she wants to cut her, her penis off, I don't care. If she wants to grow boobs, I don't care as long as she doesn't harm other people. But she is. All her opponents, all those women that work their entire lives as girls to swim fast, they're all being abused so badly at the altar of liberalism. They all have to pretend that some giant dude in a one piece with a sausage attached with no boobs is a girl. I mean, you know, as I said, check her, you know, what's in her pants, check her chromosomes. That's a dude. Sorry. And what shocks me is how are the girl's parents allowing this to happen? How are they all not just refusing to race? How is this fair? They're just like taking it. There's some grumbling, but they're taking it. How are the girls, the, the girl swimmers continuing to battle for second place, knowing that they can't beat Leah Thomas? I don't, I don't care anymore though. I've thought about it. I don't care anymore. Women want rights. We want our rights. We want our rights. We want our rights. Well, fuck you. Be willing to die for it already. Crying is not going to get it done. And speaking to the press anonymously, not on the record, is not going to get it done. Blacks died fighting for their freedom, for their civil rights. Maybe women can shut the fuck up already with these anonymous interviews about Leah Thomas and simply refuse to race. When the gun goes off, refuse to jump in the water. Let Leah Thomas win the swimming, the, the, the match against no one. You want this to end? Shut up and get off your asses. Sacrifice a little bit. Don't just whine. Somebody's got to stand up and do something. Can't just cry. Shit. Now, the last story we're going to talk about today is the Hunter Biden laptop story. And this is going to morph into some other things. The New York Times finally came out this week and admitted what they and every other mainstream leftist news organization has denied for years, that the Hunter Biden lost laptop story, which can, his laptop contained all sorts of malfeasance of the Bidens, secret deals, which involved Joe Biden, illegal payoffs for illegal lobbying. Biden family colluding with the Chinese and Ukrainian corporations and that President Pants Shitter's getting a cut, you know, 10% for the big guy. Hunter used his father's name to make deals with shadowy Chinese companies with ties to the Chinese government. As I said, Joe Biden always getting a piece of the action. To this day, Biden has not had to answer any questions about any of his business dealings. And you think that that doesn't suggest he can be blackmailed by China for what's in that laptop, his son's laptop, you know, the smartest person he's ever met. Why else is Biden on his knees for China right now? His spokesperson this week refused to say whether Joe Biden still has business dealings in China still. And it's worse than just the mainstream media lying about this laptop's authenticity during the 2020 election in an effort to ensure that Biden won. A big tech like Twitter, they banned the New York Post account when it came out with articles about the laptop. Anyone who posted that story on Twitter was banned. The story was not allowed on social media, Facebook, Twitter, anything to stop mainstream America from learning about Joe Biden's really twisted, sick family and their crimes and his involvement. Joe Biden has millions of dollars worth of homes, even though he's never had a job, but as a politician, his entire life. His wife is a community college part-time professor. How the fuck do you think this happens? He's taking advantage of his position. And the censorship worked. 
Polls showed that almost 50% of all Biden voters had no idea that a Hunter Biden lost laptop even existed. A poll showed that 16% of all Biden voters in the last election would not have voted for him had they known about the laptop's existence, which was censored completely by the mainstream American media. It's not American media. It's really not. I called it wrong. It's a leftist institution. It's propaganda. It exists for one reason, to promote leftism. It's not media. Media suggests that they're down the middle. You got Jake Tapper. I don't know. I think he's on CNN. A few days before the election, telling the Post to take down, agree to take down the tweets on Twitter and you'll get your account back. Basically saying, bury this. We don't want the public to know about what's on Hunter Biden's laptop. And what was worse than the censorship of this hugely important story is that Biden was asked about it on the campaign trail and he lied, claimed it was Russian disinformation, that Jen Psaki, that that ginger abortion spokesperson, she lied about it, said it was Russian disinformation. Even in the presidential debate, when Trump brought the matter up, Joe Biden said, quote, there are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. Five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say that what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it but his good friend Rudy Giuliani. This was both parties. It wasn't just the left. It was mostly the left. But you've got the swamp on the right. They didn't want Trump either. They want to, they want to be eating at the, the trough. They want to get more money more slimy deals, and Trump is an outsider. Nobody, nobody from the swamp wanted Trump. Later, Joe Biden said he believed the laptop was Russian disinformation, said it multiple times. And, and he was referring about the 50 former national intelligence folks who signed a public letter. During the election period, 51 actually former intelligence officers, including a former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, signed a public letter weeks before the election, casting doubt on the laptop's authenticity and blamed Russia. Quote, perhaps most important, each of us believes deeply that American citizens should determine the outcome of elections, not foreign governments, they wrote. All of us agree with the Founding Fathers' concern about the damage that foreign interference in our politics can do to our democracy. Russia had nothing to do with it. It was Biden, Joe Biden's kid, his idiot kid, who was on crack probably at the time, dropped the laptop off to get fixed at some place, never picked it up because he's on fucking crack. And the guy who owned the shop, he's not entitled. You know, it's his property if the guy never picks it up. He's the one who turned it over to Giuliani. It had nothing to do with Russia. They ended up continuing to write, it is for all these reasons that we write to say that the arrival on the U.S. political scene of emails purportedly belonging to Vice President Biden's son, Hunter, much of it is related to his time serving on the board of the Ukrainian gas company, Burisma, has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. False. All of this was lies. Now the left, through the New York Times, they admit that it was all true. They can admit it now because they know that President Panshitter is safely elected. John Brennan and Leon Panetta, former CIA directors under Obama, sign that letter. Heads of the CIA signed the letter. They lied to the American people to get Joe Biden elected. 
Brennan is famously known as being a Muslim who hates Israel, does not believe that Israel has a right to defend itself, and blasted Trump for taking out the worst terrorist in the world, Iran's General uh, Soleimani, who's killed countless Americans. That's the kind of guy who tried to lie to get Joe Biden elected. A guy who loves Iran, loves radical Islam. None of the 51 liars who committed treason with this letter will be held accountable. Biden won't be. They need to be dragged out from under their out, out from their slimy holes that they went into and questioned under oath. There was child porn on that computer. Hunter Biden was a fucking crackhead. There's pictures of him having sex with underage girls talking about it. This laptop was turned over to the Delaware police for child porn issues. They didn't do a damn thing about it. This is child porn that he created, Hunter Biden himself, and some of it includes his, his niece, his dead brother's daughter. I mean, really some sick shit. Why wasn't this released? Why wasn't? We had plenty of MAGA, MAGA out there that said, you know, I know I've seen this laptop. I've seen it. And it's going to sink Joe Biden. Why didn't they release it? MAGA had it. MAGA had it. Guys that are hawking pillows, they had it. They said they had it. Why didn't they release it? You know why. Because it's not always about what's right for America when you're MAGA or when you're any other political affiliation. It's all about money. You want to situate yourself as being strong for something to get followers and get famous and be popular, but you don't give a fuck about this country. Because if you did, you released the laptop and you sink Joe Biden when you see what his son was doing, the sick shit that his son was doing. That's what you do. But this treason didn't start with this letter from these 51 sellouts. It began when Obama was elected and he immediately decided to bend over for Iran <clears throat> to sell out our Middle Eastern allies for the worst Muslim terror state in existence. He backstabbed Israel, the Saudis, the UAE, Egypt, and it continues with Biden today. But let me digress a bit. I was a Democrat once. I'm not MAGA today. I'm not MAGA. I voted for Walter Mondale. I voted for Bill Clinton twice. I voted for that clown, uh, Michael Dukakis. I stopped voting Democrat as soon as 9-11 occurred when it was clear to me that one party loved America with all their problems, and God knows they have problems. And one party wanted to harm America by hoping that Bush would fail in his war on radical Islam. I never turned back at that point. I couldn't understand how half of America could want to harm our country. I felt that in times of great strife and war, national emergencies, both parties should work together, would work together, and I was wrong. And now, decades later, I want Joe Biden to fail. Not to harm America, because I want to help America. I, I can't support a guy who, on one hand, is about to take off the terror list, the terror arm of the Iranian government, the Revolutionary Guard, which has killed so many Americans. <clears throat> what is America getting in exchange for this? Taking off the worst part of the Iranian terror machine? Iran is promising not to target Americans with their terrorism. Last weekend, they sent ballistic missiles at an American base in Iraq. This week, just take us off the terror list, off the sanctions list, and we promise we won't do it again. They took credit for it seven days ago, and we're going to believe them now? This is an abandonment of our allies. This is endangering Americans. 
this deal, giving them money and taking their terrorists off the terror list, will get Americans killed. Not maybe. Yes, 100%. I will not support it. And I also won't stay silent. The incredible irony of the Biden administration's appeasing of these worst terrorists on the planet is their seeming inability to understand that our allies are turning away from America as they realize that America is abandoning them. Syria's butcher Assad, who Obama kept in office even after he promised to stop him if he used poison gas against his own people 10 years ago, and of course he used the gas against his own people and Obama did nothing. Assad visited the UAE recently. This move by the UAE to welcome Assad sent a clear signal that the Arab world is willing to re-engage in official relations with a pariah state, Syria. But what choice do they have when Biden is strengthening the terror state, Iran, which is trying to harm them? The State Department said it was, quote, profoundly disappointed and troubled by Assad's official visit to the UAE. Quote, we urge states considering engagement with the Assad regime to weigh carefully the horrific atrocities visited by the regime on the Syrians over the last decade, as well as the regime's continuing efforts to deny much of the country access to humanitarian aid and security. That was what State Department spokesperson sniveling Ned Price said. This is a guy who says it's okay to give Iran billions to take Iranian killers off the terror list, but now he has a problem with the UAE supporting Assad? Price added that the trip was, quote, an apparent attempt to legitimize Assad. What do you think taking Iranian terrorists off the terror list is doing? What do you think giving them hundreds of billions of dollars, letting them trade their oil so they can use it to give all their terror proxies in the Middle East? You don't think that's legitimizing them? Of course it is. Biden's backstabbing of our allies is doing this. It's why the leaders of the UAE and Saudi Arabia aren't taking his phone calls now that he's desperate to import oil because we stopped taking Russian oil. They're pivoting away from the United States. And hopefully they will harm America by doing this. Because it's the only way, I don't want America to be harmed, but it may, might change our ridiculous leftist policy, which if anyone has a brain, can see is destroying America. You like runaway inflation? Do you like it? Do you like paying more $10 for a, a package of bacon to stuff in your, in your pie hole? You like the fact that you can't get cars? That you're paying, you know, five bucks for gas? You like being controlled by China? Well, you must like Joe Biden then. China is presently trying to buy Saudi oil with its own currency instead of the dollar. That's a story that did not make much news recently. The Saudis sell a quarter of its oil exports to China. If that happens, the American dollar collapses. And if you haven't noticed that we are falling desperately behind China, you will soon. When all your government cares about is strengthening radical Islam and brainwashing our youth to support trans rights, Well, guess what? You can be sure we're going to collapse soon one way or another. 80% of global oil transactions are done in dollars right now. What would that look like if the Chinese currency became the oil industry's currency of choice? Tell me. Our economic dominance was built on the petrodollar, not just the strength of the U.S. economy. Why is the dollar so strong? Why is it so liquid? Well, because countries need to maintain huge amounts of dollar reserves to buy oil. If the Chinese currency was substituted for the dollar for global oil sales, well, countries will have to maintain Chinese currency reserves instead. At the moment, 
2.48% of the world's cash reserves are held in Chinese currency. 55% are in the U.S. dollar. Oil producers receiving Chinese currency would have to spend it on Chinese debt and imports, and it would further strengthen the Chinese economy while destroying ours. For some reason, Biden and the far left, which is barely complaining about the Russian slaughter fest in the Ukraine, I mean, just look at that AOC, that Alexandra Jimenez, Cortez, Perez, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar, they don't want sanctions against the Russian people, and they're still talking about Israel. Sanction Israel, they kill, what, 2,000 Palestinians in the last 30 years, mostly human shields and terrorists. Uh, Russia's killed way more in a few weeks. No sanctions on them, just on Israel. Biden and the far left think that we can keep shitting on our Middle Eastern allies, and they're shocked that they're pivoting away from the U.S. and towards traditionally bad actors. It's what it is. I mean, this is what the far left is. Rashida Tlaib is a, a rabid Palestinian supporter, a terror supporter. That's what she is. She's for defunding the police, uh, uh, closing every federal prison. Imagine that. Defund the police and close every federal prison. What do you think happens to America? You think good things or bad things? She's a radical Islamist. She wants the destruction of America. If you can't see that, you're blind. You can't be a good actor and support Iranian terrorism, which is what the last two Democratic administrations have done. The chickens are coming home to roost, and it's going to be ugly very soon if things don't stop. You heard it here. I said it in 2008 on the radio when Obama was about to get elected. I said, you would not recognize America in 20 years if he wins. I was right. We still got a few more years. We're going to find out. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. You can also go to beyondthelegallimit.com and sign up and get a weekly email about this week's podcast. See you next week.